Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future. Brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, uh, we'll turn our attention to national security with Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution. He's uh, written a new book called The Art of War in an Age of Peace. And we'll talk to Michael about that book and his concept of a grand strategy uh, for these times, which includes what he calls resolute restraint. And of course, we'll take a look at what all this means for the defense budget. Joining me in the questioning will be Concord Summer Policy Analyst, Tim Tyndall, uh, who has some uh, uh, real-world on-the-ground experience with national security. Tim spent four years as an enlisted intelligence analyst in the Army. He spent nine uh, of those months in uh, Kandahar, Afghanistan, where his main role was advising military uh, commanders on security, political, and economic issues, and making targeting recommendations to support both U.S. and Afghan operations. He's currently entering his second year at UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. And uh, Tim, I can tell you from experience that the second year really is the toughest. But after four years in the Army and nine months in Kandahar, I don't think you need to be intimidated by that. Our guest this week, Michael O'Hanlon, is a senior fellow and director of research and foreign policy at the Brookings Institution, where he specializes in U.S. defense strategy, the use of military force, and American national security policy. He co-directs the Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology, the Defense Industrial Base Working Group, and the <clears throat> excuse me, African Security Initiative within the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. Aside from his latest book, he's also authored Defense 101, Understanding the Military of Today and Tomorrow, and Beyond NATO, A New Security Architecture, for Eastern Europe and uh, many other books as well. Uh, Michael has written several hundred op-eds and is widely quoted in the media. In 2021, he was named one of Washington's most influential people in national security and defense. Michael, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you, Bob. Nice to be with you and Tim today. Well, uh, I have to say, I feel a little bit uh, under-credentialed uh, with your gentleman talking about national security issues, but, um, uh, but I'll do my best. Tim, um, uh, or, or rather, I should say Michael, um, first off, uh, I'd like to get your, your, um, just your overall take on, on the book. I mean, it's a very in intriguing title, The Art of War in a Time of Peace. Uh, but the subtitle is, is probably really um, what the, the book is about, which is the grand strategy and, and what you call resolute restraint. So, um, you know, before we dive into details, just uh, what is war in a time of peace? And, uh, and tell us a little bit about resolute restraint. 
Well, thanks, Bob. And first of all, let me say you are not under credentialed. And the reason <laughs> the reason that you are not is, of course, because national security is intimately related to economic prosperity and the foundations of our long term economic and scientific power. Ultimately, uh, military deterrence and warfare rest on a foundation of science, technology, and therefore the economy. And there's no way to separate one from the other. The notion that somehow there is an absolute set amount we must spend on defense to provide for our security, and that's non-negotiable, and it follows immediately from the Constitution, that's a bunch of nonsense. We are always making judgments about what's in our national security and what we can afford to do, what's the best you know, gamble about how we can minimize long-term dangers. And it's some combination of shoring up our domestic strength with having a military that's capable of addressing problems abroad. And ideally you can find a way to do both, but uh, that, that's why the conversation needs to be broader than just us defense specialists. But to get to your question about my book, and thank you so much for having me on to discuss it. The idea of resolute restraint is meant to have equal emphasis on both of those words, resoluteness and restraint. I think we need to be resolute in defending not only ourselves and our own American territory, but our allies and their core territories and populations from any kind of attack. We have treaty commitments uh, with 29 other countries in NATO, with a half dozen countries in East Asia. We have the equivalent almost of treaty commitments with a number of countries in the Middle East, like Israel and Jordan, even though there is no treaty backing up any of those relationships. So we essentially have a system without even counting the Rio Pact in Latin America, which is similar, but a little different, where we have dozens of countries that we're committed to help defend. And I think we should be resolute in those commitments. So I don't agree with President Trump's uh, often wavering about whether we should defend ally A, B, or C. And I also don't agree with the so-called offshore balancing school in academia that wants to pull back from a lot of these overseas commitments on the theory that we are economically distressed and overextended and therefore should retrench. Um, I think that view ignores the last 75 to 80 years of great power peace, which is no accident and is partly due to the fact that we have stayed allied with other key powers in the world whose security is ultimately important to our own. So we, we've avoided the mistakes that led to the world wars where we were disengaged from Eurasia and its security. We've stayed engaged, Japan, Korea, Australia in the East Asian theater and so forth, NATO in Western Europe. And I think that's been crucial to preventing great power war in those theaters. So I wanna be resolute also in defending airways, open sea uh, lanes of communication, the basic underpinnings of the global economy, uh, and finally, I would like to be resolute in reducing the risks of nuclear weapons proliferation. So we should be pretty committed to trying to not necessarily prevent each and every time uh, a country tries to get the bomb, because sometimes we'll fail, as with North Korea, for example, but certainly to do whatever we can to keep a cap on the problem. So those are the areas of resoluteness that I don't think we should waver. And I wanted to write the book partly to push back not only against Mr. Trump, but against many academics, many very well credentialed and prestigious academics who subscribe to this so-called offshore balancing school. And they sometimes call themselves restrainers to get to the second word, but they're really, frankly, more radical than that in many cases. They want to retrench. They don't wanna just restrain the United States from interventions in places where we shouldn't fight uh, because frankly, it's, you know, they're probably right about 
that in many cases. But they want to pull back in, in a number of, uh, of, of writers' opinions from NATO, from Japan, from Korea. I think that would be a big mistake. So I want to stay resolute in defense of those global interests of the United States. But I want to be restrained in when and where we use force. You know, And who can argue with that after 20 years of being bogged down in the Middle East? And I know Tim served uh, admirably in Afghanistan. I supported the Afghanistan mission, but I don't want to see any more of those kinds of interventions than absolutely necessary. But even more to the point on the issue of restraint, I want to avoid taking actions that would provoke great power competition or stoke animosity with Russia and China. And a lot of times American national security specialists put all of the onus on Moscow or Beijing because they're both ruled by autocracies. They're both uh, aggressive in their own ways in recent years. And therefore they both require American resoluteness in pushing back. And I agree. Moscow and Beijing pose a lot of problems for us, but there are certain actions that we might take in the future. For example, the idea of expanding NATO to include Ukraine and Georgia, which I think is a bad idea, or the idea of having war plans for the Pacific that would rapidly escalate to a high-end conflict against China if there's uh, a Chinese use of force in a limited way against an island in the South China Sea or East China Sea. Some of these ideas in American national security policy, I think, are really too reflexively muscular, too potentially escalatory. And I wanna see a bit more restraint in how we think about uh, pushing out our security perimeter, especially near the borders of Russia and China. So those are some of the ways in which the, the sort of competing themes of resoluteness and restraint, you know, their intention, but I think we need a policy that uh, is informed by both, just like we need a policy that recognizes we still need to be good at the art of war, uh, because while it's an age of peace in the sense of no great power conflict for many decades, the peace is fragile. And if we forget the art of war, the peace may not be sustainable. So yes, I tried to create this oxymoronic uh, element in my title and subtitle, but I think it's a set of tensions we need to wrestle with uh, without going to either extreme in either all out resoluteness all the time or all out restraint all the time. Um, I, I'll get one in one more question before I uh, bring Tim into the conversation. Um, so we have an, a new administration and they've begun to do some of the, you know, show the, uh, their, their policies on the national security stage. President Biden wrapped up, uh, quite a, a trip to Europe, uh, recently. Um, and, you know, I was just wondering if you could take that resolute uh, restraint concept and apply it to the apparent policies of the new administration. You mentioned the uh, it seemed to be a little bit of a mission creep with NATO on working China into its uh, communique. And uh, I was wondering if that was kind of an example of, of overreach. Uh, evidently, uh, uh, you know, you think it is. And, and, and the other obvious example is the uh, decision to withdraw completely from Afghanistan. Um, is that too much? Does that fall into the retrenchment category? And does the NATO example fall into the uh, lack of restraint category? Yeah, for, for those two examples, Bob, I actually um, agree with what you said about one. But on the other, my position uh, is not what you might expect. So on the NATO and China question, I think it's actually good 
for America's core allies to push back prudently against Chinese behavior where that behavior is threatening or unacceptable. But the question is, how do you push back? So I don't and wouldn't want a big effort by the Biden administration to try to convince Germany, France, and Britain and others to help us develop a war plan against China that would envision even more rapid escalation with all of NATO against China over a small skirmish in one of the uninhabited island areas of the Western Pacific. I would not be in favor of that. But I do favor NATO collectively saying, if China is trying to create economic vulnerabilities within the Western alliances, if it's not playing fair in its economic policies, if it is trying to use you know, Huawei and 5G to create opportunities to coerce Western societies or to spy on governments. In these cases, we should push back, not with big military threats, but with corresponding economic and uh, you know, other kinds of scientific and technological restrictions on Chinese access or maybe even subsidies for some of our own Western firms that could compete more effectively. So that's where I want NATO's efforts to go vis-a-vis -vis China. And for the most part, that's consistent with what the Biden trip to Europe achieved. So there I'm with the president. I'm not with him on Afghanistan. I think he's made a big mistake. I think we have finally downsized the mission in Afghanistan, less than 5% of what it had been. I look forward to hearing from Tim on this. I don't know which years he was there, but a decade ago, we had just over a decade ago, we had 100,000 US troops. That was an enormous and probably excessive investment. And I will concede that I was probably wrong to support that level of a buildup at the time. At least it didn't play out the way we had hoped. But we were down below 5,000 US troops in Afghanistan a year ago. And that was a sustainable number. Just because something is a second order interest like Afghanistan, doesn't mean that you have to zero out your military commitments in that part of the world. I think you want to have some kind of a balance between the level of commitment, the level of interest, the level of threat. And to my mind, we had actually worked our way towards that with a few thousand US troops and another few thousand NATO troops supporting an Afghan government that was doing almost all the ground fighting by the you know, last few months uh, or last few years. And uh, that probably had a good chance to hold on to most of its territory with that level of outside help to then facilitate a peace process that really hadn't even gotten seriously off the ground. So I would have sustained that. And uh, I think we're running some risks of you know, terrorist sanctuaries developing in Afghanistan. I also feel like we're you know, leaving the Afghan people holding the bag. When they've been a good ally for us, helping us defeat the Soviets in the 1980s, and when a lot of the uh, reformers and you know, intellectuals and women's rights advocates and others in Afghanistan are going to be in dire distress without our presence. Tim, do you want to jump in here? Sure. Um, actually, I had a question about um, retrenchment again, and as it relates to the defense budget, uh, you mentioned in the book that Professor Posen at MIT um, actually advocates uh, for something like retrenchment and uh, says that there could be something like a 20% savings in our, our defense budget. Um, and it almost seems like you suggest that that 20% that we're spending in our defense budget is actually preventing us from having to spend money on World War III um, and stuff like that. Is that, is that a fair conclusion? And, uh, and why, why is that 20% savings? Why, why should that not be compelling for people? 
Yeah, thanks. It's a great question, Tim. And first of all, Barry Posen, who was my professor 30 some years ago, is brilliant. And anything he writes, I take very seriously. And he's certainly been one of the pathbreakers in our field. And I'll give him credit. I think that he, like a number of other academics uh, who was opposed to the Iraq war at the time it occurred, has been largely vindicated. I still hope that the Iraq experience will ultimately turn out to be something that we can look back on and say that however badly conducted, it still created the possibility of a democracy in Iraq that may have some long-term benefits, but it's still too soon to, to say that that justifies the war. So I give Posen credit when he's been in favor of restraint on military interventions. But where I have a difference of view is this notion that somehow the great power piece in Eurasia that we've all experienced and benefited from for 75 to 80 years is somehow self-sustaining or that it can be easily maintained by the regional countries themselves. Uh, what I found in history is that a lot of times uh, familiarity breeds contempt. It doesn't breed cooperation. And if you look at Northeast Asia, for example, the raw feelings between Japan, Korea, and China that date back to history, to many previous conflicts, certainly to World War II and the Japanese occupations of those two countries, uh, but also many centuries before that, that creates a lot of mistrust, a lot of potential for conflict. And without the United States you know, being necessarily angelic or wonderful or always smart and always noble ourselves, we're far enough away that we're a little bit more of a dispassionate player in those kinds of security environments. And I think the offshore balancing school undervalues that basic role of the United States and undervalues the nature of the last 80 years of history, somehow seeming to take that for granted or explaining it through nuclear deterrence or some other kind of single causal uh, contributor that makes our ongoing military presence seem irrelevant. I don't think it's irrelevant. I think we've been you know, enormously helpful in stabilizing those places. One more way to look at it, uh, former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, uh, you may remember this line, he, he once said, we Americans have a perfect record of predicting the future of war, we always get it wrong. <laughs> Meaning that the next war is always in a place where we didn't expect and of a nature that we did not anticipate. But I would turn that on its head as well. And I would say in the places where we really try to prevent war, like Japan, Korea, and Western Europe, we tend to succeed because we back up our commitment, not only with pieces of paper in the form of treaties, but with forward deployments of American military personnel that, are, that speak even more loudly than Donald Trump's or any other individual American actor's you know, statements that we may or may not fight if an ally is attacked. That the presence of those troops, reinforced by decades of cooperative exercises and collaboration with those allied partners, really has gone a long way towards preventing war. So yes, by that token, 20% savings is, is you know, a false economy because running the risk of a World War III is a far greater potential economic consequence than that 20%. I'll give Posen a lot of credit, not only for everything else I already mentioned about his work. And again, I think he's just off the charts in his brilliance, uh, even if I chose to challenge him on this particular point. But his, his math is good. He's careful. There are a lot of people out there who would say, if we would just pull back, we could cut the defense budget by 80%. And Posen does a more careful analysis to basically say, it's really only 20%. 
which is you know about 150 billion dollars a year, which is as Bob knows better than I. Therefore, you know, 15 percent or less of the structural deficit. In other words, even if we do what Posen says, we're not really dramatically improving our fis our fiscal standing, and yet we are, I think, substantially increasing the chances of interstate conflict and even World War III. So, to me, the 20 percent savings is not worth the risk. And, uh, and, and I find, you know, the fact that we've gotten defense down to just about 3% of GDP is actually a pretty reasonable place to be. It's half or less of the Cold War average by that metric. And, uh, and I think it's sustainable. You're listening to Facing the Future. This is Bob Bixby. I'm talking to Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution about his new book, The Art of War in an Age of Peace. I'm joined by Tim Tyndall of the Concord Coalition and the New Ham uh, University of New Hampshire School of Law. And uh, we will be right back with more of this conversation in just a few moments after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is Bob Bixby. I'm here with Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution and Tim Tyndall, a Concord Coalition summer analyst at the, and student at the University of uh, New Hampshire School of Law. And we're talking about Michael's book, The Art of War in an Age of Peace. Um, Michael, um, we're talking about international challenges uh, but a lot of uh, a lot of national security is really about uh, domestic security and shoring up the institutions uh, at home. And you mentioned that uh, that was something that you were reminded of by the late Alice Rivlin, who uh, we both revered and uh, and and worked with uh, over the years. Could you uh, give us a little bit about why domestic uh, um, soundness <laughs> is really important for the national security interest? Thanks, Bob. Well, two reasons in particular. One, of course, that our modern American military is built on a foundation of a strong economy and a strong science and technology base. You know, we often talk about our troops being the most important part of the military. And again, privileged to be on this podcast with Tim, one of our brave young Americans who served so admirably. But we also benefit from the excellent weaponry and other technology that we send those troops into battle with. I have a good friend at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, Mackenzie Eaglin, who likes to say that we have made two solemn vows with the men and women of our military, one that will always take care of them, uh, especially you know, while they're serving, but also if they're hurt, um, when they're veterans, when maybe disabled, a, a, a real commitment at the human level to those men and women and their families who serve but also that we'll give them the best equipment when they go into battle so that when they fight the enemy, they win and the enemy loses. They survive and the enemy dies, as McKenzie likes to say with her, with, with her um, Georgia lilt, and it sounds better coming from her than from me, but it's quite compelling. We should never forget the importance of modern weaponry and the you know, conversations about our defense manufacturers are often a little pejorative and people talk about cost overruns and you know, this and that problem. And of course, we do need to scrutinize and make sure we constantly hold uh, contractors accountable, but they do build the best weaponry in the world here in the United States that our troops go into battle with. And that's a reflection of the strong economy and technology base that we still have here in America. That's reason number one. Reason number two, 
about why the soundness of our economy and our polity really matter is that if we don't all, or at least most of us buy into this notion that American leadership is good for us in our own lives, then you can see populist politicians, whether Donald Trump or maybe someone on the left or some future politician basically argue, it's time to pull our commitments away from overseas leaders. It's time to end our alliances and our trade agreements and really focus on the American middle class and make sure they don't get left holding the bag for all these overseas commitments that we've built up in this era of globalization. Now, I think that's a false argument. For one thing, most of the struggles of the middle class, as I've understood them from people like you and Alice and Maya McGinnis and Ben Bernanke and many others who have explained to me what's happened to our economy over the last few decades, it's more about automation than globalization per se. There have been times where trade agreements or overseas commitments have been done on, on poor terms and we need to get tougher in some of our trade uh, agreements. But for the most part, the struggles of the middle class today are not fundamentally about our overseas engagement. Nonetheless, um, even if that's objectively true, to the extent the middle class in America feels squeezed, feels like it's not being adequately heard or protected by policymakers in Washington, and those same policymakers are flying off around the world to help allies, whether in security terms or economic terms, that's going to create a backlash. And it's going to create uh, you know, really an erosion in the consensus that we've had since World War II about how the United States needs to stay engaged in the world. My colleague Bob Kagan at Brookings writes about how we could maybe revert back to the kind of attitudes that were so prevalent in the 1920s and 1930s when we had an isolationist America that was so focused on its own problems or opportunities that it ignored what was happening in Europe as Hitler was rising. And next thing you know, if we have to go fight World War II, it's too late to prevent that war. And uh, that's the danger, that America disengage, pull back home, and there's no alternative big power or group of countries that can play the same role to help stabilize the international order. So we need a really strong economy and scientific base for our military technology. That's reason one. And we need enough consensus to undergird this American commitment to a, a global role and a strong international leadership role because I think the world doesn't hold together nearly as well without us. Kim, you want to jump back in here? Sure. Um, as, as part of uh, your resolute restraint uh, grand strategy, uh, it, one, one of the main components of that is um, imposing sanctions on countries in lieu of uh, uh, basic military actions. And uh, one of your concerns with that is making sure that we make ourselves less vulnerable to counter sanctions um, and uh, reciprocation from other countries. And um, what the, the, the recent news uh, with the semiconductor investments in the United States, um, I was wondering uh, what you think about that and if there's, there's anything else you'd like to see um, from the administration um, in Congress uh, that can make us less vulnerable to that. Yeah, thanks, Tim, great question. Well, First of all, I'm a big supporter of that kind of thing. I don't claim enough expertise on the economics to know that this particular bill was written in an optimal way. Uh, and maybe it's wasteful or maybe it's, you know, somehow not well enough conceived, but to me it looks right in terms of its basic motivation anyway. Second, I think we need to mitigate further our vulnerabilities to any kind of commodity 
where China or Russia would be the primary supplier at such a high level of the global overall base of, of production that our economy would somehow shut down if those supplies were cut off. And so certainly rare earth metals would fall into that category. We also learned in the COVID period that we have certain pharmaceutical dependencies on China. The American pharmaceutical industry overall is much better than China's. And that's one of the reasons why I have not lost faith in the strength of American technology or you know, belief that this could still be sort of an American century. But we've been somewhat indifferent to who produces what where as long as it reduces prices for consumers. And I think that sort of econ 101 view of the world is obsolete in this era. We have to make sure that China does not produce more than a certain percentage of whatever core crucial element or intermediate good in a global supply chain is essential to our fundamental well-being. It doesn't matter as much about you know uh, purely recreational merchandise. We could theoretically afford a cutoff of some of that for a while if China somehow embargoed us, but uh, I'm worried about national infrastructure, I'm worried about our military, I'm worried about the health of Americans, those sorts of things. To the extent we have dependencies on China, uh, then we need to mitigate them. And so I'm a big supporter. Here I am a supporter of some of what Donald Trump did in his presidency by using the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States and other elements of government to look for these kinds of vulnerabilities and start to try to mitigate. And the very last piece is whatever we do, it will not be adequate if our allies stay vulnerable especially the key allies, like the major economies of Western Europe, Japan, and Korea. And some of those economies have an even greater dependence on China than we do, and certainly a greater dependence on Middle Eastern oil than we do. And so in those areas, I'm in favor of really having a robust alliance dialogue about how to mitigate these kinds of you know, potential choke point vulnerabilities. And we gotta do that now before the crisis might happen. Um, we've um, talked a lot about the uh, the resolute um, restraint and uh, grand strategy, and I want to bring it back uh, at the end here to w what the implications are for defense spending um, uh, and and the national debt uh, as an as an issue. So, kind of a, a two part. Uh, question for you to, to, to close with is, uh, what do you think the implications are for the defense budget for the grand strategy that you um, are advocating? And do you see our fiscal challenges, uh, the rising debt, the, uh, the, you know, the level that it's at now and rising further, do you see that as a national security issue? On the second question, yes, absolutely. And you know, I'm enough of a student, I don't claim to be an economist or a fiscal expert, but I'm enough of a student of all the people we've already mentioned, Concord Coalition, Bob Reischauer, for whom I worked at, at CBO back in the day, um, and many colleagues at Brookings, including Bill Gale, who wrote a wonderful book called Fiscal Therapy a few years ago, that it, it does strike me that even though there is a reassessment among economists about just what debt burden is sort of sustainable, and low interest rates have made it possible to think maybe we can tolerate a little more debt than we once would have preferred. Nonetheless, it not only reduces our flexibility in the crisis, and we certainly could see more crises from one cause or another. 
but it also potentially erodes our investments in that scientific and economic and educational base, as well as infrastructure that's so crucial for our long-term economy. And uh, so again, Bob, you're better at explaining what level of debt is too much and where that begins to you know, compromise our ability, for example, to pass an infrastructure bill. Apparently we can still do that because we're apparently about to do that, I hope. But at some point, you know, even if you have a big government plus up in infrastructure, if you get to a point where there's too much government debt and interest rates go up and then becomes appealing for the private sector to invest in that government debt, there's less private money to invest in infrastructure in other ways. Uh, this is the best I can do at explaining the dynamic as to why Fed or high debt is ultimately harmful to your core foundations of economic power. But uh, again, everything I've read suggests that economists used to think that when you got up into the range of 60 to 70 percent debt, uh, publicly held debt relative to GDP, you were starting to enter a danger zone. Now we're up over 100 uh, percent. So yeah, we've become a little more lenient in our older age, some of us, <laughs> uh, but I'm not sure that we should therefore just dismiss the concern altogether. And that's why I love the title of Bill Gale's book, Fiscal Therapy, because unlike a lot of the commissions that you and I know well from 10 and 20 years ago, the kind of commissions that Alice was often part of with people like Pete Domenici and you know, Bob Carey and, and others, uh, even if we're not gonna try to eliminate the deficit on any short-term time horizon, which perhaps has become economically unnecessarily and politically unrealistic, we need to have a concept of how we reduce debt relative to GDP over the longer term. And that's where I loved Bill Gale's you know, not only his argument, but his title. It was sort of about, you know, dealing with our problems, understanding our problems, getting on a gradual long-term path towards handling them. Not so much the abrupt call for immediate austerity, but uh, more of a different glide path. And I think that argument remains quite compelling. So my view on defense spending is you shouldn't start cutting defense now while everything else continues to grow. Uh, there's not enough money in the defense budget to solve our fiscal woes that way, even if even if it were internationally and strategically justifiable, which it's not. But defense people like me need to be ready to see how defense could contribute sort of its quote unquote fair share to any future uh, strategy for fiscal uh, you know, fiscal reform and uh, a, a better long-term economic path that the country might generate. If we get to a point where we're trying to come up with a big fiscal package uh, that would reduce the deficit, then I think defense needs to be ready to play its role. And for the meantime, in the meantime, I would hold defense spending more or less constant in real terms. So that's already a contribution if we can do that, because over time, of course, that means it will become a smaller fraction of GDP than it already is. So to me, that's the right goal. We had a pretty big buildup under Trump. It didn't last that long, but it wound up boosting the annual defense budget from the low 600 billion range to the mid 700 billion range, uh, which is much higher than the Cold War average in inflation adjusted terms. The Cold War average was in the low 500s. So in that sense, we got a pretty robust defense budget. Relative to GDP, it's relatively modest if you think in Cold War terms. Um, so I'm pretty comfortable at a broad macroeconomic level with where defense spending is. And therefore I, I like the idea of sort of keeping it there but people like me who do defense, even if we call for increases in some areas of spending, we need to keep looking for ways to make the defense enterprise more efficient and identify areas where perhaps things could be streamlined.
and probably that would go beyond waste, fraud, and abuse. But uh, right. that's right. Yep. <laughs> the usual, the usual suspect. Well, I often point out uh, that you know a lot of the reason why the budget got balanced in the in the nineteen late nineteen nineties was defense spending went from six percent of GDP down to about three percent of GDP, and that three percent of GDP made the whole a lot of difference. We can't do that again. We can't win the Cold War twice. So we can't get we can't get three percent of GDP savings from defense. So we're going to have to uh, look elsewhere, including revenues. But that's a subject for another day. Um, Michael, uh, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, we have been discussing Mike with uh, Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution, his new book, The Art of War in an Age of Peace. Uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, uh, we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And for this segment, I'm joined by Tori Gorman, Policy Director of the Concord Coalition, and Tim Tindall, Summer Analyst and Defense Policy with the Concord Coalition, and a second-year student uh, coming up at the uh, University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law is still with me. We're examining the defense budget this week. And uh, Tori, we uh, uh, have been talking about grand strategies with uh, Michael O'Hanlon at Brookings. I think it'd be a good idea though, just to drop back for a little bit and talk about the defense budget and where it fits into the overall federal budget picture. Sure, uh, to give you some context about defense spending, I'm gonna take you back to fiscal year 2019 before coronavirus. Uh, because obviously all the emergency spending that we did for the coronavirus kind of distorts our budget figures a little bit. So typically that defense makes up about 15% of the total federal budget, which I think is probably a lot smaller than, than people expect. Um, we spent uh, 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 in 2020, fiscal 2020, we spent about $760 billion on the, the, the defense budget. Um, so that's sort of where it, it, it fits uh, relative to overall spending. And it is, uh, it is discretionary spending. Is that right? It goes through the annual appropriations process. Exactly. A majority of the defense budget is on the discretionary spending side. Um, all of the, the veterans' health care, that's all considered its own budget category, and that's on the mandatory spending side. So yes, the Pentagon's budget in general is discretionary defense spending, and so that's revisited every year by Congress in the appropriations process. And that explains a, a factoid that gets out there sometimes that we've run into in the field for years, which is we say that the, the defense is 15% of the federal budget, 1-5. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we'll have some people say, no, 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 no. It's your way off. It's 50, 5-0% of the federal budget. And what they're looking at is it's maybe 50% of the appropriations of the discretionary spending. Right. That would be accurate, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a much smaller percentage of the total federal budget, 15. So okay. we should... Uh, clarify that. Tim, um, aside from the, the, the top line number of what we spend, there's a question of what do we spend it on? Uh, you've been looking at the Pentagon budget, so could you give us a little breakdown of where the dollars go? Sure. Uh, so the actual uh, defense budget is a, the defense, the national defense budget function uh, consists of the Pentagon budget, uh, Department of Energy's uh, nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons, um, and then other defense activities. 
which includes um, like CIA funding, um, certain Department of Homeland Security funding, and then the actual uh, Pentagon budget, which in um, Biden's uh, 2022 request, uh, their uh, request for uh, budget $715 billion. And uh, that breaks down um, in, in 2021, the breakdown was uh, between uh, three main categories, operations and support, uh, acquisitions and infrastructure. Um, operations and support is uh, things like uh, operations and maintenance, um, actually conducting operations that goes to uh, military personnel uh, compensation. Um, things like that, that makes up about uh, two thirds of the budget is operations and um, operations and support. And then acquisitions makes up another third, which is split between procurement and research and development. Um, and then the last sort of 1% of the budget goes to infrastructure, which is goes to infrastructure, including um, military housing. Um, there's some notable things that aren't included in the Pentagon budget, like uh, veterans affairs spending, which is about it's, it's over $200 billion that isn't included in the defense budget, but it's obviously um, related. And, um, and within um, the operations and support uh, category, the, the, two, the two biggest categories under that are um, our compensation and then um, actual operations and, and just towards um, actual pay we spend about 244 uh, in 2021. Um, the budget request for was for 244 billion dollars uh, just for compensation, 163 billion for actual uh, military personnel. Let's say we said green suitors in the military, mm -hmm. and then uh, civilian pay would be uh, 81 billion dollars. Uh, so that's actually uh, quite a large chunk of our our defense budget. I know that some uh, military some people at the uh... Pentagon worry about uh, personnel costs, uh, particularly healthcare costs, uh, squeezing out other other parts of the uh, uh, of the defense budget. Uh, is have you noticed that in your research as a problem that comes up? Um, the main thing that uh, should be noted about uh, the personnel costs, I think, and I've heard um, uh, HR McMaster has said this specifically, is it sort of uh, it's. It, I think gives people sort of a false impression of where our defense spending is. When uh, people say things like we spend more than the next 10 countries combined on defense, that is technically true, but we, we spend so much on pay that other countries don't have to spend um, because they're, they don't have the same opportunity costs um, for their, their military personnel. Um, so I think it might've been in CSIS. I saw a report yesterday that says for every um, soldier we can hire uh, for a set amount of dollars. China can hire uh, three or four soldiers, something like that. Um, it's kind of an yeah. interesting perspective on <laughs> when you start adding up the total dollars, I guess. It really when is. You... And the healthcare costs, of course, are pay for military um, healthcare workers. And so it goes to their compensation as well. So the, the compensation sort of inflates everything. Thank you, Tori and, uh, and Tim for that uh, quick overview. Uh, and uh, thank you to Michael O'Hanlon for his earlier strategic insights into national security policy. You've been listening to Facing the Future. This is Bob Bixby, your host. Tune in again next week where we'll have another episode of uh, Facing the Future.